Corinthians chapter 16 this morning, Sunday morning, studying the book of 1 Corinthians in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and just wave, get their attention, and they'll give you a Bible that's marked to the passage that we're studying this morning for your ease. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, we want you to make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. The word of the Lord. Now, I will come to you, Paul wrote, when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling. Sounds a little English, doesn't it? Quite unwilling. It is the King James Version, isn't it? But he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for all that's bound up in these verses. And we pray for a work of your Holy Spirit in this room and in our lives to bring them out, Lord, and to produce practical and daily equipping in each one of our lives. Thank you for the diversity of your word, that you are concerned about every aspect of our life and that all of it would be under your control and that all of it would be able to bear your beauty and your anointing upon it. So bless us. Teach us this morning, we pray. Thank you for your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul is now formally closing his letter to the church at Corinth. And as we've seen in chapters 1 through 14, he has addressed multiple, multiple practical problems that were occurring there within the church, and, and he has addressed them, corrected them. And there were so many practical problems because the church was uh, made up largely of carnal Christians, Christians who were dominated by the flesh rather than uh, filled and led by the Holy Spirit. All churches have their problems and uh, that need to be addressed. It's a, there is maintenance involved in any local church. They had an extraordinary amount because of just the high percentage of carnal Christians that attended the church. That's always a very complicating factor. He then dealt in chapter 15 with a the lone theological issue that needed correcting, and that was this teaching that had gotten a foothold in the city, that, in, in the church, that there was no resurrection. And having taken care of all of these issues 
In chapter 16, he closes with personal remarks uh, to those that are uh, there within uh, the church. And so he begins to address these personal issues between himself and this church that he loved for all of its problems, a church that he had been used by God to uh, plant and then to establish. The fact that these comments that he makes here and what he writes here are highly personal doesn't mean that they're any less inspired of the Holy Spirit than all of the rest of the letter that he wrote, or indeed less inspired by God than uh, anywhere else in the rest uh, of the Bible. I, for one, I'm very, very thankful for uh, these personal comments that Paul lays out here. I'm as thankful for them as I am for the practical and the theological parts of the letter for the simple reason that any glimpse that the Holy Spirit gives me into the thinking, uh, the thought processing, uh, the motivations in the Apostle Paul, I'm very eager to see that. Yes, I want the theology. Yes, I want to know what is right and what is wrong. But I also like to know what made this man tick. What is it that causes a guy to go into a city, preach the gospel to the city, and have the opposition become so great to him that they stone him to death. Right there on the city street, they stone him to death. And they would have thrown more stones on him, except that they thought he was already dead. They dragged him outside of the city, and they left him for dead. He might have been dead, and God raised him from the dead. Or he might have, they just thought he was dead and checked the pulse, and no, there's no pulse, and they leave him, and then out he goes. And either God touches him and resurrects him, or he kind of has some life in there, and he kind of comes to from the clobbering that he's ever had. I've never been stoned to death yet in my life. Imagine the physical abuse. So he comes to, and what does he do? Catches the first Greyhound bus for a city, you know, going to any city other than where he is. That's not what he does. Dusts himself off, and he walks right back into the city and continues his ministry. People like that make me curious about the deep streams that flow in their life. What causes a person to live like that? And they have that kind of a commitment to God and his calling. So I'm thankful for these personal revelations into his uh, life. The Apostle Paul was, of course, an extraordinarily busy man, a very, very much in-demand person. So it was impossible for him to say yes to every uh, demand for his presence or his service that would be put forward uh, to him, that would, these requests that would be made on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. If he said yes to every request that came his way, he'd have been burned out in two weeks and rolled right on out uh, of the ministry. Paul also had to make plans for his life and his ministry that reached far out into the future, forced to make plans that dealt with commitments that needed to be made months and years uh, before the actual events occurred. And, of course, this is true for any leader in the body of Christ, and it's true of all uh, Christians as well, everyone in life as well. But... 
For instance, in this church, when we plan the next trip to Israel, that's always something where it is dealt with and it's planned and it's processed and all well over a year in advance before uh, it then gets announced and the event actually occurs. We don't know what's going to be happening in Israel uh, a year from the time it's announced until the time that the actual trip takes place or what will be happening in our individual lives or in the condition of the world. But the plan is made. So often um, a minister or a pastor is invited to uh, speak at another church, maybe fill in for a pastor who's going to go on vacation. That commitment is made. Or they're asked to speak at maybe a pastor's conference. And those commitments are usually asked for at least months in advance and sometimes more than a year in advance. And these commitments are made, again, without the knowledge of what's going to happen in life between now and then. And these kind of things are true of not only pastors or leaders, but it's true of all of us as Christians, whether it has to do with our own personal life or whether it has to do with uh, our ministry life. Each of us has to make plans concerning the future or what will happen to us. Uh, in the immortal words of Yogi Berra, he said, if you don't know where you are going, you'll end up someplace else. Got to know Yogi to follow with all of that. Now, in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul reveals to us some of the principles that guided his making of plans for the future. And it's very, very important to have biblical principles guiding our lives in this regard. First, it, because in this regard, principles are more valuable than our plans. Someone's put it this way. The intelligent have plans. The wise have principles. Why is that true? Because so much of life rarely turns out as we plan. And because so little of life turns out as we plan, we will continually need to fall back on our principles to readjust to a new reality. And for us as Christians, a sense of what the Holy Spirit is leading in a different way than we might have originally thought. So plans are inflexible. Principles are flexible. And biblical principles provide us with the flexibility we need in a world that is changing all of the time all around us. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Mike Tyson, who is famous uh, as one of, uh, a former heavyweight champion, boxing champion of the world, he famously said concerning plans, he said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. It's very deep, actually, what he had to say there. It's very, very, very true. In other words, a plan is good, but a plan has to be able to readjust to a new uh, reality. It's one thing to go into the boxing, ra into a, a boxing ring, and you've spent 
weeks and months studying your opponent. You expect that he's going to box in this way. You know what his strengths, you know what his weaknesses are. But that's not going to be the same boxer that enters in as your opponent in that ring that you studied on tape leading up to the fight. This is a different person than before, new twists, new ways. He has studied you just as thoroughly. And so when you go in there and now you get surprised by how the fight is going, how he's fighting the fight different than you thought it might be, and now all of those plans were wonderful, but now there's the need now to readjust those uh, plans and, and, to, uh, and a means by which to do that. So... In, in real life, not just in boxing, when you're in the middle of a crisis, your equivalent of your boxing ring, how do you abandon a plan that looked great on paper in the quietness of our living room or that looked like a great plan to make in the tranquility of our life at the moment that we made that plan, but now in the middle of a crisis is being exposed as impossible in the face of a new reality. How do you change that plan without at the same time feeling like if you do change your plan, you're going to lose the stability that the plan brought into your life and you're going to run the risk of being overwhelmed with a sense that it's going to send you into this free fall uh, without a net. The plan is the only thing that's holding my life together, and yet I've got to change the plan, but I don't dare change the plan, but it needs to be changed, and that's a miserable place to be in. And the answer for how to handle that is principles. Principles constitute the safety net under our plan. We simply fall back on our principles in order to reassess our new reality and then establish a new plan concerning the future in this area of our life. And what Mike Tyson felt in the boxing ring, everybody feels in some area of their life, whether it might be in the area of military uh, leadership. Military generals throughout history have felt uh, this on the battlefield in, in leading battles, Dwight D. Eisenhower, famous uh, battle in the European theater of operation for the United States and beyond allied forces in, uh, in Europe during World War II. He said concerning this, in preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Uh, leaders of nations understand this. Very same thing. Winston Churchill, he said much the same thing, a contemporary of Dwight T. Eisenhower. He said, plans are of little importance, but planning is essential. In other words, making plans about the future is good, but you also need to have a deeper set of principles that you can fall back upon in order to uh, reassess those plans and revise those plans that have now irrevocably changed on us. A husband and wife make plans for the future, and then one of them unexpectedly dies. That's a new reality. And plans have to change at that point. 
somebody receives a life-changing medical diagnosis. They had a plan that required good health, perfect health, in order to accomplish that plan. That plan's got to be revised. That plan's got to be changed. The breakup of a deep and meaningful relationship in the lives of two young people they're thinking this is very, very serious. This is headed toward marriage. And they begin to think about, even talk about plans for the future to involve marriage and what life will be like. And then a breakup occurs. All of that gets shattered. And all of those plans need to be reprocessed. And they need to be uh, revised and sorted through. The loss of a job will do exactly the same thing. So I want us to notice this morning some of the principles that guided the Apostle Paul's planning. First of all, we want to notice that Paul did make plans. He speaks of his plans to the church at Corinth in verses 5 through 7. He wrote this letter to the church at Corinth from the city of Ephesus where he was currently ministering. He speaks to us about that in verse 8. That's how we know that he wrote 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was in what we would call modern-day Turkey. Paul's plan was to ultimately leave Ephesus, travel to Greece, to Macedonia, the northern part of Greece, to then visit the very many churches that he had planted in northern Greece, and then make his way down to southern Greece and visit with the church at Corinth that he had also planted and established. He intended upon spending the winter there in Corinth because it was unsafe to travel on the Mediterranean Sea in the winter in that time in history and that he would then, following that winter with them, travel on to Jerusalem to deliver the offering that the church at Corinth was now involved in. That was his plan, and none of it came to pass. His plans didn't just change a little bit. What ultimately happened in his life doesn't even remotely resemble the plan that he had. In fact, he would take these original plans and he would revise them twice before he ultimately ended up in the city of Corinth. He didn't spend as much time in Corinth as he had intended to or as he had hoped to or they had hoped to, but that's just the way that life is. We make plans, we intend, but then so many things change. And this, of course, ended up causing some problems for some within the city of uh, the church at Corinth because they said Paul said that he was going to come to Corinth and he was going to come in such and such a way at such and such a time, and he didn't do that. He's not a man of his word. You can't trust him. He's just flaky. He says yes, but he means no. He says no, but he means yes. It's a terrible, terrible thing for them to say uh, uh, about him. Very unfair. Because everyone has situations arise in life that are beyond their own control, and they require a change in plan. I, I've had the privilege and the blessing of being involved in planning uh, some pastor's conferences through the years. And sometimes you have to contact these pastors. Their schedules are very, very busy. You have to contact them not just months in advance, but years in advance 
That's how far their schedules are planned out. And so you get a commitment from them, and these are going to be the three main speakers of the conference and all. And almost always, everything works to where they're able to come, but occasionally in the week before the conference or just a couple of days before the conference, you get a phone call, and one of them says, my wife has just been rushed into surgery with internal bleeding. We don't know what's going on. I can't leave her right now. Well, yes, of course. So the plan was made, but life rises up and the plan has to be revised. Or sometimes one of the children will have a problem or a crisis will occur in the church that's significant enough that they can't come. And everybody understands that. We say, yes, you stay home, take care of business, and we'll move forward with something new and see what it is that the Lord has in mind. And I'll tell you candidly, I'm very encouraged that even the Apostle Paul had to change his plans once in a while. Now, there isn't anything wrong with making plans concerning the future. Some people think that it's presumptuous or it's unspiritual. It's presumptuous for a child of God to make plans concerning the future and not involve God. But making plans on the part of a child of God, that is not presumptuous and it is not unspiritual at all. Let me read you a couple of verses that commend wise planning. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5 the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. You know, planning is commended. But those of everyone who is hasty, surely to poverty. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22. Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they're established. Proverbs 22, verse 13. A prudent man foresees evil, and he hides himself. So he's looking out to the future. He's planning in the light uh, of, uh, uh, of the future and events that are going on. But the simple man uh, pass on and are punished. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18. Plans are established by counsel, by wise counsel, wage war. Now let me add that as Christians, we are not to make uh, self-devised, impulsive decisions concerning the plans for our future. God is to be involved, and that requires three very important things for all of us. Number one, it requires prayer, seeking of God for his wisdom and his direction related to uh, our lives. So, Lord, so before we make a commitment or we make a plan, we take it to the Lord in prayer and we ask for his mind related to that plan. After all, we don't want our plan for the future. Had enough of that before I came to know the Lord. We want to have his plan for our future. Here's a couple of verses that speak to that. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, very famous. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, that's prayer, and he shall direct your paths. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, that's prayer, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, reproach and it will be given to him. The importance of prayer in determining our plans. A second thing that's important 
in making plans is to run our plan for the future through the grid of God's Word, to allow the Word of God to examine our uh, plan, because God will never call us to do anything that violates His Word or compromises His Word. If it requires me to compromise His Word in order to plan a particular event or to make a particular decision, then I know that that plan is not of God and I shouldn't go in that direction. In the Bible, we have the most peerless source for knowing the will of God. Our plans for the future are also to be tested by the Holy Spirit. Not just prayer to the Father, not just examination by the Word, but also to be tested by the Holy Spirit, by the peace of the Holy Spirit. So we can desire to do something, to plan something for our future, and the Bible doesn't uh, say no related to what it is that we're planning. It meets the standard of God's Word. But it may not be something that the Holy Spirit has for our lives personally at this time, whether we're supposed to take this vacation in such and such a location. Uh, There's no book of vacations in the Bible. Uh, There are decisions like whether we're supposed to take a job offer. The Bible lays down principles but doesn't tell us whether we're supposed to specifically take that job or not. God's Holy Spirit leads us related to that. It can be applied to a missionary trip or a ministry commitment. Colossians 3.15 speaks to this, where Paul wrote, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And this addresses those decisions in life that the Bible does not address directly. Questions like, am I supposed to marry this person? The Bible says a lot to do about marriage, but you're never going to find his or her name in the Bible and the place that you're supposed to get married. That's something, that's direction that has to come from the Holy Spirit. Am I, again, supposed to take this job? Should I buy this house? The Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And that word rule means to umpire. So it's baseball season. We understand even if we're not big baseball fans, we understand we get in the spirit of it a little bit. We understand what an umpire is. And one of the responsibilities of an umpire is to call something either safe or out at the plate. And that's what the Spirit of God The peace of God is supposed to do related to decisions in our life that aren't specifically addressed by the Word of God. We allow the Holy Spirit to make a call on that issue. How does that happen practically? What does that look like in our life? Well, we're going along in life, minding our own business, and then it happens all of the time. There's a fork in the road. It can be an opportunity or a decision that we have to make. We don't want to make the decision, I don't want to be in this place but I'm in this place, the road forks, I didn't see the fork, I got to go left or I got to go right. Now, Yogi Berra said that when you come to a fork in the road, what? Take it. Yes. So, fortunately, God's wisdom is a little bit better than that. So, we come to the fork in the road, 
and we don't know whether to go left or to go right. And so what we do here is let the peace of God rule or umpire in your heart. There will be, if not immediately, then over a period of time, that we will look at the fork on the left, and if we look at the fork on the left, that particular opportunity, and our peace abides, then that's God directing us in that direction. I used to think, let the peace of God rule in your heart, mean when I was a new Christian, that when we come to these forks, he'll give me an extra super-duper amount of peace for one side or the other. I've come to revise my thinking a little bit on that. I think he can do that, but I think what he's talking about is we'll look at one fork in the road and the peace that we walk in all of the time with the Holy Spirit, that peace will stay. And we'll look at the other side of the fork in the road and our peace will be disturbed. The Holy Spirit may not tell us why. He may not give us an explanation. We just look at that decision to go in that direction, and it's unsettled within us. I don't know why. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. Something's wrong here. There's something about that that I can't see or understand, and I'm not comfortable going in that direction. And it's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit kind of disturbs us against making a wrong decision, and it's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit directs the child of God in our decision-making. Never, ever go against your peace as a Christian in making plans, in in decision-making. Never go against that peace. A peace should always continue to just abide in our lives between us and the Holy Spirit. If a decision disturbs that peace and that relationship, with God, then something's wrong. Never go against that peace. Every time I've gone against that peace, I'm, I got to learn everything the hard way, it seems like. But I, I've learned that one the hard way. Every time I've gone against my peace, it has ended up being a wrong decision. Some of you are very familiar with a man by the name of George Mueller, very famous saint and uh, servant of the Lord in church history and used by God to raise orphanages, a tremendous, uh, to raise up orphanages and to help orphans and a tremendous man of faith. And he spoke about these three things, prayer, the word of God, the place of the peace of God in decision-making in this way. I think it's very helpful. He said, thus through prayer, the study of the word And reflection, I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. If my mind is thus at peace and continues after uh, two or three more petitions, I proceed accordingly. And what he's describing is allowing the peace of God to rule in our hearts. It is the way that we involve the Holy Spirit in our decision-making, and in our planning. And it's one of the ways that God guides us in life. Just this last week, we had a board meeting, as we do on a uh, schedule to do on a monthly basis. And the board meetings always begin the same. They always begin with prayer. And in the course of that prayer, and we'll lift many, many things potentially up to the Lord uh, 
in prayer, but we always pray and ask God for his wisdom and his direction. We pray that every decision will be in line with his revealed will and his word and that our decisions would be marked by the peace of God, that when the meeting is over, we can walk out of the room and know that we served this church body and served you in a way that these decisions match the word of God and we all walk out with a peace that we have the mind of Christ related to these decisions. And that's how the Holy Spirit works on a practical level in our lives. Now, second, I want you to notice that Paul built considerable flexibility into his plans. When he made plans, he built flexibility into those plans. And I want you to notice how, as somebody has said, how wonderfully indefinite he is in this passage and the different phrases that he uses uh, to describe and qualify his plans. In verse 6, he says, it may be that I will remain. He talks about going to different cities, and then in verse 6 he says, wherever I go, wherever I end up. In verse 7 he says, but I hope, that's a qualifying statement, but I hope to stay with you a while. And so he's building in a lot of flexibility in all of this. And there's a lot of humility represented in this, and I think especially uh, in a leader. There's a lot of pressure on pastors and leaders on the part of Christians and Christian congregations to portray general perfection in their lives. And for that to carry over into decision-making and into planning. And there are some people who believe that a leader is not a truly spiritual if they ever make a wrong decision or if they ever make a plan that they have to revise. And this is some kind of idyllic thing that people have in their minds. This is what was going on in Corinth. Paul qualifies all of his plans with all of these statements. He wants to, he hopes to get there, wants to spend the winter with them. He ends up doesn't working out for him. And then there were some in Corinth who said, you can't trust what that guy says. His yes is no, and his no is yes. He's just a big flake. Forget about Paul. Imagine trying to minister in that kind of a ministry environment where there isn't any room to change a plan, and if you do, that somehow you're thought of as unspiritual for having not heard God correctly as you should have seven years before the event or however long the time uh, is. James wrote in this regard, in James chapter 4, he said, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. This is planning. Spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Not one of us knows where in the world we're going to be for sure in a year. Not one of us knows whether we will be alive on this earth to fulfill any plans that we have in a year. And so we try to hear uh, the Lord on everything. Sometimes we hit it. Sometimes we miss it. God's got grace for 
all of it. So he's building flexibility into his plans. Again, Winston Churchill's quote, plans are of little importance, but planning is essential. So some planning is necessary in life. We all recognize that. But our plans must be flexible enough to accommodate themselves to a new reality. And this was the flexibility that Paul was trying to build into his plans and into his commitments. There's nothing wrong when someone uh, asks you to make a commitment related to something for you to qualify that for the sake of flexibility, where you might say, listen, I will try to meet that commitment. I will try to be able to be there on that day for that event, or to say, perhaps that'll work out, and let's see what happens. These are qualifiers that we put upon plans that we make or commitments that we're not sure about, and people recognize, uh, sane people, reasonable people recognize when we have to qualify our plans in that way. Never feel bad, no matter how important the person is or how much pressure is being brought to bear on you to make absolute concrete plans related to something when you know you can't do that. Always feel free to qualify it in this way, as Paul does, and to build flexibility into uh, that commitment because you're unsure of whether you'll actually be able to keep that commitment or not. We notice also, in terms of Paul's principles, that he covered everything with, if the Lord permits, in verse 7. We would say, you know, Lord willing, we will do such and such. And here Paul is modeling exactly what James has recorded for us again in James chapter 4. I'm going to reread what I read earlier, but then give you the rest of the passage. He said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. And that may, that may represent 50% of the Christians in this room. The decisions just are made like this. On a, I'm going to do I, this, that, no prayer, no anything on it. You know, It's a living word. It's important to listen to it. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Indeed, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil. And James is saying there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing arrogant about planning. There's nothing boastful about planning or presumptuous. What is presumptuous and what is boastful in planning on the part of a child of God is when it occurs without God's involvement. Now, this phrase, if the Lord wills or Lord willing, that's the ultimate qualifying statement concerning any plan that we can make, and it really brings great peace into the planning part of our lives. 
because we're communicating the understanding that, yes, I'm committing to this plan, but with the understanding that God has every right to change those plans if he desires to. So if you're okay with that, with those parameters on this commitment, then I'm willing to make the commitment. And that's not an easy uh, thing for every kind of Christian. There are some kind of personalities where once we make a plan, we keep that plan it, no matter what it takes and how hard it is, and, and we don't like them to be disrupted in any way, and we're not even going to let God uh, change a plan at all no matter what, and then we, you know, crash and burn as a result. And it helps us to realize that the necessity of just learning to relax when God disrupts our plans with his plan, because his plans are always a lot better uh, than ours. So it doesn't mean that we don't plan or we become known as somebody that you can't count on, but it means that I respect and it means that I rejoice in God's right to change my plans. If the Lord permits, communicates that my plans are submitted to him and to his will, and I can commit to a situation as long as the person is willing to under those uh, uh, perimeters as well. And it keeps us in a wonderful place of peace in our uh, planning. We notice too in verse 9 that Paul didn't determine God's will uh, for his life uh, based on whether a particular path or plan was easy or whether it was difficult. Notice in verse 8, he said, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So the presence of strong opposition does not mean that we've moved outside of the will of God or that a plan needs to be changed. Being in God's will can be very, very hard. It was hard for the Apostle Paul. It was hard for Joseph. It was hard for Moses. It was hard for David. It was hard for Jeremiah. It was hard for Ezekiel. It was hard for Isaiah. It was hard for the Apostle Peter, who ended up being crucified upside down as the means of his death in order to be faithful uh, to the Lord and to his calling upon his life. And so we just stop right now and we ask ourselves in the privacy of our minds, when you think about being in God's perfect will, what comes to your mind? Oh, what comes into my mind is the stillness of Lake Tahoe on a summer morning, just about 5.30 in the morning. The sun is starting to you know, give promise of coming forth. It's so quiet. It's still a little bit cool before the heat of the day. And that's what the will of God looks like to me. Read the book of Acts. <laughs> and sometimes we think that. That being in the will and the plan of God means that I'm laying back in a lazy boy recliner, and every 30 seconds someone is stuffing a chocolate bonbon into my face. 
But we have this idea so often that when things just go crazy, explode in all kinds of directions, things become a mess, they become difficult, that somehow I'm out of God's plan and I need to revise my plans, and it's not necessarily so. The apostle Paul, think about him and what the whole thing that he was in the middle of is described in Acts chapter 19 when he's there in the city of Ephesus and he just comes into town and he just begins to preach this gospel, this living gospel. And people start to get saved. And he goes to the synagogue to do it at first. And in the synagogue, they'd, people listened to him and were saved. And others said, we don't want you in the synagogue again. So he moves into a different building. And in that part of the world, in the heat of the day and all, they would take and work through the morning, and then from about noon until 4 or 5 in the afternoon, they would have a siesta time, a long break, and then they would come back to work and work into the evening. That's just the way the heat dictated things. And the Apostle Paul goes there, but rather taking the day, than taking the daily siesta, he spends a four- and a five-hour block every single day ministering to the Word to anybody who wants to listen, developing disciples that then go out into the whole part of that part of the world and change the world. People who were witches and warlocks and into spells and into uh, demon possession and being possessed and all this kind of stuff, they became Christians and so committed to Christ, they brought all of their books about this nonsense, put them in a pile and burned them. The worship of the goddess of Diana in the city of Ephesus was going to pot. And I don't mean it in the sense of Oregon or in the sense of Colorado. Traffic was going downhill. This was the center for the worship of Diana. And they noticed this guy just comes into town. He stays here three years, preaches this gospel, disciples Christians, and he has put a dent in the number of people that come here to worship. They noticed and they wanted him dead. There were many, many opposers and adversaries to the Apostle Paul. I remember reading years ago, it's one of the favorite things I've ever read about the quote of an English pastor who was living a very pastoral, uh, ministerial life, and he was comparing his life to the Apostle Paul's, and he said, everywhere Paul went, he started a revolution. Everywhere I go, they serve me tea. You notice the world of difference. And sometimes we think uh, God's will is always going to be sitting in someone's parlor enjoying tea, when sometimes it means a revolution. I want you to also notice in verses 10 and 11 that our planning is not to be dominated by some major weakness or character flaw in our lives. God will oftentimes call us to do things that force us to grow out of some limiting personal characteristic in our life. And that's what God was doing through the Apostle Paul in Timothy's life. Timothy was a younger man in a very patriarchal world where great respect was given to older men and no respect given to younger men. 
So he was a younger man. He kind of had this queasy stomach all of the time. He had constant stomach problems, so physically he was somewhat frail. And he had this personality trait and characteristic was that he was fearful. He was a naturally fearful man. Some of us understand that. He was a man that was given to timidity. So he's the kind of guy that when he would tend to look in just who he was as a person and he would look at a plan or look into the future or make a commitment, all of that timidity and all of that fear would factor in and it would dominate his decision-making. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that plan because I'm afraid I won't be able to do what God has called me to do. I'm not going to do that because that's going to put me in front of a large group of people, and I am a naturally timid person. And Paul didn't give Timothy the option. He sent Timothy out to go and do these things under the direction of the Holy Spirit so that Timothy would not the rest of his life further put his barriers inside, inside, inside until all of his planning and decision-making is dominated by the weakest parts of his life, by his fear and by his timidity. Now, Paul was very, very concerned about how Timothy would be received by the church at Corinth, and rightfully so. This church disrespected and a Uh, the Apostle Paul in a way that was appalling. And he's worried, now I'm going to send this young guy with these problems who is naturally kind of awkward in the situations and has a fear of groups and speaking and this kind of thing. They'll tear him to shreds. And so Paul spoke to them about how they were to treat him. They weren't to despise him, but to treat him well because he was a hardworking servant of the Lord. There's so much that we could say about the relationship between Paul and Barna—I mean, Paul and uh, Timothy—they couldn't have been two more different people. And it wasn't just that Timothy got all of the blessings of that relationship. Well, yes, he's with the apostle Paul, and look how much he learned and gleaned. Yes, that was true. But you can't read the scriptures without realizing that Timothy, for all of his goofiness. For all of his youth and his problems and his quirks, just like all of the rest of us, there was something about that guy that was a great blessing to Paul, a great encouragement to him in his ministry, someone he liked to be, to be with, someone he liked to travel with. But I want to keep focused on our theme of, theme of principles that are to guide the making of our plans concerning the future. One of the great things about serving the Lord is that it forces us, it forces us, it forces us to grow, not just spiritually, but in terms of our character and our personality in ways that we would never otherwise grow. I like what one man wrote. I read it many years ago and wrote it down just for this kind of a vein He said, the highest reward for a man's toil is not what he gets for it. It's not the paycheck, but what he becomes by it. And that's the truth. And nowhere is it more true than having to do with Christian service and Christian ministry. We must never, ever allow the 
are making of future plans to be dominated by some major weakness or flaw in our lives, or else the protection of that flaw will trump God's will in our lives and his plans for our future. And that's important because it's always wanting to factor itself into our planning, and we have to be conscious of it and make a stand against it so that it doesn't come to dominate every aspect of our life. Serving the Lord as Paul's protege uh, by God's design forced Timothy to face his natural timidity and to grow beyond it instead of letting it dominate him for the rest of his life, instead of having it be the dominant grid that he ran all of his plans concerning the future through, which is what all of us will do if we're not aware of this danger within our lives. Our planning concerning the future, again, must not be dominated by some weakness or character flaw in our lives. God's will is everything. God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. I close with this in verse 12. In making plans for the future, one must learn to say no to even those we love and respect and owe the most to if it's necessary to do so. When we feel that God is desiring that we do something other than what they would like to see us do. And you notice that Paul strongly urged Apollos to go to Corinth And the word strongly there means strongly, but repeatedly he exhorted him. Think about the Apostle Paul coming to you and repeatedly urging you and exhorting you to go to the city of Corinth and minister to the needs of that church. I mean, that's tremendous kind of pressure that's being put upon Apollos in all of this. And Apollos was the exact opposite of Timothy. Apollos was a very, very bold, eloquent person. He loved to be in front of people. He loved crowds. He loved to speak. He loved to say things that would stir things up, and let's see what the gospel will do here, and to contend earnestly for the faith. He liked all of of that. Very, very beautiful personality. And so Paul was urging him strongly and repeatedly, and Apollos was quite unwilling And the beautiful thing about it was the Apostle Paul put in his two cents, and strongly so, more like a buck fifty. And yet when Apollos made his decision, he backed off and he honored that decision because he did not want the position of being a mediator in his life, Apollos' life between him and God, or to be responsible for his uh, decision-making. He let it go. It's a beautiful, beautiful snapshot of both men. And Apollos didn't do something just because the Apostle Paul told him to do it. Even someone as important as the Apostle Paul, as influential as the Apostle Paul, that wasn't enough. If he felt that God was telling him to do something else, then he planned accordingly. There have been a couple of times in my service to the Lord 
where men that I respected so much, I've made this mistake. And they said, you got to do this, and you need to come, and this and that and everything and all. And, boy, I don't know, and you know, and I'm not getting clarity from the Lord on that plan and all, but, boy, they're saying, and I owe them so much and think so highly of them and all of this. And then I go to that particular event, and there um, I'm all alone. Holy Spirit isn't with me. He never told me to come. And there I am up in a pulpit in front of who knows how many people. And I want to call on my friend who's also in the audience. You got me into this. You come up and finish this sermon. It's the longest 45 minutes of your life. And you just do it a couple of times and then you realize, no, as much as I love and respect all of these other people, I must plan myself between the Lord and I. And sometimes that happens right into relationships within our life or plans that mothers and fathers of adult children that they have for them and peers and mentors and teachers and all where there has to become that place where we pull aside and we respect them for the place that God has given them in our life, but we do not allow them to become, to, to take that kind of an undue place of influence in the making of our um, uh, plans and the willingness to resist, even at some cost of, of some damage, in order to uh, do that resisting. And so here we have in this passage a beautiful passage, an important passage, because we're here all of the time as Christians in life. We are always planning and always making decisions. And sometimes it's just helpful to realize, all right, I'm not crazy. I'm not alone. The Apostle Paul had to change his plans too or to look at the principles that undergirded his making of plans to say, yes, I knew all of those things, but I needed to be reminded of them today because of what I'm facing right now and the pressure that's being brought to bear upon my life. Or someone says, I've never heard those things before, and now they're going to become a part of my Christian life. Or someone says, I knew some of those things, but not all of them, but I want all of them to have a working place within my life. Valuable valuable, practical stuff. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for your word. And even as we began, we just thank you for the diversity of it, how it deals with big things and small things and in-between things and things that we think are small things but will become big things if we don't handle them your way. And we thank you for these principles in planning and the decision-making that we've been able to look at today. And Lord, we know that you have spoken exhortation and edification and comfort into so many hearts through your word today. Thank you so much for your word and your concern for every area of our lives and that we might know and enjoy peace and have boldness and confidence in every area 
in our life and to be fruitful, Lord, and to have the kind of life, even in our planning of life, to have a life that glorifies you in all of the ways that you have given us to glorify you. Thank you for your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian,